Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Mick Garris is probably one of the most prominent names in horror history. He's a prolific writer, a prolific director, a prolific human being in every sense of the word. One of the most interesting things about Mick is that he's been working in horror in one way or another for almost four decades now, and throughout the course of that time, he's watched cinematic history unfold. He began his career answering phones on Star Wars and then went on to do publicity work on American Werewolf in London, and he even makes a cameo appearance in The Howling. Mick is the guy on the couch at the end watching Dee Wallace as she turns into a werewolf on TV. Mick has produced, written, and directed a countless amount of movies and TV shows and has had a famously long-standing collaborative relationship with Stephen King. Mick made his directorial debut with Critters 2, which has a very special place in my heart for good reason. Critters 2 is the first time I'd ever seen a topless woman in a movie with the beautiful Roxanne Kernohan. And the fact that Critters 2 was a PG-13 let this one fly right under the radar of my parents as I burned that VHS out. I must have rented it so many times. Thank you for that one, Mick. Mick has also worked on such films as The Fly 2, Psycho 4, The Beginning, The Stand, Riding the Bullet, Bag of Bones, Tales from the Crypt, Sleepwalkers, Batteries Not Included, Hocus Pocus, Amazing Stories, the TV series Freddy's Nightmares, and the very epic Masters of Horror. Mick has been interviewing big names in horror for decades and is very dedicated to his own education. He's a naturally curious person and a very, very incredible interviewer. You probably know him best for his podcast, Postmortem with Mick Garris. And if you don't, turn this off right now and go listen to Postmortem. It's incredible. It's the best horror interview podcast out there. It's up there with Shockwaves. Go listen to it if you haven't already. Be sure to check out Mick's new film, Nightmare Cinema, coming to theaters this February. In addition to having worked in horror for so many decades on so many movies in so many different capacities, Mick is beloved in the industry and has had really close friendships with some of the biggest names in horror. Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, George Romero, John Carpenter, Joe Dante, Guillermo del Toro all have the pleasure of Mick's friendship. And on top of being incredibly knowledgeable, Mick is a very genuinely sweet person. I really had a wonderful time speaking to him, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Now, here's the legendary Mick Garris. Hey, Nick. Mick, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How's everything going? Ah, uh, never better. Yeah, really, really frantic. Oh <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you got a lot, lot going on these days. Uh, it's 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 a good time. Great, great. I uh, one thing I think is particularly fascinating about you and your career is how comprehensive it is. How you you started <laughs> behind the scenes with a lot of movies, and you essentially had just a front row seat to horror history, having worked on The Howling and American Werewolf, and you and working with uh, with George Lucas and and Spielberg. It seems like you had a front row ticket to to cinematic history. And you worked in different capacities behind all these different films. Is it fair to say that that was essentially your film school? Absolutely. Um, you know, I could never have afforded to go to film school in my youth. And uh, yeah, that was definitely a an earn while learning. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was uh, starting out at Star Wars, answering phones for 150 bucks a week, mm-hmm. ending up operating R2-D2 on the Oscars, which is the only time I've ever been or will go to the Oscars. 
So, yeah, I, I kind of invented my own life. There was no such thing really as a genre specialist doing publicity, doing, you know, conventions, which were much more rare than um, dealing with the magazines, which were more plentiful than, mm -hmm. you know, the Fangoria's. And there were a bunch of horror print magazines at the time. And there was no Internet doing that. So I kind of created that job of doing specialized publicity uh, for genre films, um, <clears throat> inspired by my boss at Star Wars, Charlie Lippincott. Hmm. I learned a lot from him. He's the guy who first took Star Wars to the San Diego Comic-Con before Comic-Con was a big promotional thing. Oh, right. Um, it really was a bunch of comic collectors. And then they showed that's where the buzz started for the original Star Wars. And so he, he was my professor. Oh, that's very, very <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, and historically, you've, you've seemed to always put yourself in a place where you're interviewing a lot of top names in horror and just in cinema in general. And you're still doing that to this day, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, how has that shaped you as a filmmaker? Well, it's interesting because I've always been curious. And I started out doing rock and roll journalism right. and interviewing, you know, I was 15 years old and interviewing uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, you know. And so it was, cool. But I was also a singer in a band. And, and so I love education. I didn't love school, but I love education where you actually are learning what you're passionate about. Right. And what, what better way to learn than to talk to the people who are the best at it or who you admire. So my first ever interview in high school was um, Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling wow. was my second. Wow. So, so those, I just was fascinated by that and asking questions that if they interested me, I figured they would interest other people as well. And I've always maintained that curiosity because I always feel like a beginner, even though I've been doing it as long as I have. Mm -hmm. Directors don't work together. Right. So you don't know the process with anybody else. It's a very personal process. And so starting back with the Z channel and doing people from John Borman to William Friedkin to Toby Hooper and all, um, yeah, I learned a lot. And what I learned mostly is that everybody's vision and approach is different right you know? um and yes to <laughs> to make it a shorter answer yes i learned a lot from that and i i i do interviews because uh i love to learn and i love to get insight into every kind of, from a veteran filmmaker who's been doing it for 50 years to somebody new like Cor Coralie Fargia or mm -hmm. Ari Aster or people who have one movie to their name, but it's an impressive movie that I right. want to learn about. So Right. Well, with so many comprehensive years of speaking to directors and your own experience in the industry, what do you think is the kind of price to entry for directors who want to get into horror today? What What's different about this time period that directors need to be aware of if they want to enter the uh, horror business so to speak everything is different everything is different <laughs> the the spy channels the access to uh to the material you know people want their stuff online and they want it for free um making a living as a genre filmmaker there are filmmakers you would know of who've made movies you know and love who can't make a living doing it um mm -hmm. because the the uh, material available, there's so much of it 
that the people in charge of distributing it, the keepers of the gates, they don't need to pay for it, or they pay very, very little for it. The best thing, well, I started as a writer, and for me, story and screenplay and performances are everything. Mm -hmm. But once I started directing, I learned what the emotional impact of a certain shot would be, how it's composed, what lens you use, what movement you do. I think the, the best thing you can do is watch movies um, and watch them critically, watch them, pick them apart. It's hard to do because a, a good movie, you don't want to pick it apart. You get sucked up in it and you go, oh shit, I forgot to watch <laughs> how, how this was done. And and things, you know, post-mortem is also there to be of value to see how filmmakers work and the process. But if, if you want to become a screenwriter or filmmaker to get rich, well, fuck you. You know, uh, <laughs> that's a very unlikely thing that's going to happen. Right. If you do it because you love it. And, you know, I would say number one rule on making your film, whether it's a short or a feature, is don't hire your friends as the actors unless mm. they are the best possible actors around. Go to film schools, go to drama classes, go to, you know, find places where there are good actors around and don't get Jimmy because he made you laugh at a bong party last week. You know? <laughs> um, right. Because realizing that the competition you're not just competing with other amateur filmmakers. You're competing with the best filmmakers on earth because right. everybody's doing streaming now and Netflix is doing it and Amazon and they're getting the most expensive, most uh, acclaimed filmmakers to do it. So the competition isn't the guys entering the film competition. It's the guys making movies. Right. Right, and I feel like the bar has been raised when it comes to, particularly now with horror. I think in the case of something like Hereditary, where you there were such serious, established actors that were in yeah. a, technically a genre film, and I think that that elevated Absolutely. it so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ari had made a couple of very well received short films, and that was his entree. He got right. the opportunity to do this, um, but if you're making short films, it has to stand out. If you're right. writing a screenplay and you give it to an agent, that agent every every Friday night takes home 30 scripts. Mm. And you've got to write the script that makes him keep turning pages because they're going to read the first 3 or 4 pages and if they're knocked out, if they're not knocked out by that, they're going to toss it aside and go to the next one. Right. So so even if you write something that might not get made, if it draws attention, that might get you a job writing something that would get made or at least some meetings to meet the people who might be interested by your work. So now the tools of filmmaking are so ubiquitous and so inexpensive that you can make a quality feature film on an iPhone like Steve Soderbergh did, right. you know, uh, Unsane is a terrific movie. And yes, he had great actors and he's a great DP and knows how to light and all of that. But he uses the tools that you've got available, mm -hmm. that anyone has available. Yeah. So um, in your case, I, you had somewhat of a background in film marketing. I know you worked on publicity for American Werewolf. What are, from that end, what are some of the most 
unexpected and uncommon skills that you think directors need to have today? I would imagine that your marketing background probably helped you with pitching films and with with having a sense of kind of how, yeah, how to pitch producers. Is that something you recommend aspiring filmmakers do? It helped me in other ways because it gave me access to filmmakers. I would interview them for press kits and things like that. Mm. I go on the set and watch how a film was made. But as far as the marketing and and pitching and things, I hate pitching. (laughs) And I think I can do it well if called upon, but I'd much rather just write a script on spec. And if they like it, great. If they don't, well, then on to the next one. I do that to this day. I've still got a ton of scripts that have never been bought. But I'd much rather, because if you pitch a project and get hired to write it, well, that's huge. That's fantastic. But it also means you have to outline it first. You go through the development process where they disagree. They give you notes. They make changes along the way. Right. If you write something on spec, uh, it's entirely yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody has any input but you. So it's a bigger crapshoot because you may take months of your life to write a screenplay that nobody wants to buy. Right. But for me, that's worth it. And, you know, I've only produced two or three, three spec scripts over the course of 30 years of filmmaking. So, you know, I've got a dozen at least that have not been made, but I love them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're good samples. Right. So whether they get made or not, they can lead to something else and, and often have. Yeah. And I'm sure that just the sheer act of writing these spec scripts really sharpens your writing ability and just keeps you sharp and helps you kind of codify your own visions. And I feel like that's something yeah. a lot of aspiring filmmakers don't take into account because they feel like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time writing a spec script. if Nobody's going to buy it. It's like, no, no, no. You got to hone your skills. And it also can act as a calling card. Like you mentioned before, even if they don't make it, They'll see it and they'll see, they'll get a sense of who you are as a director. And then that might prompt interest later down the line. You do it out of, of honing your craft. You, the first time you sit down to, to do a sculpture, it's going to suck. Right. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. If you care, um, if, if you sit down and write, first of all, finishing a script, your first screenplay that you finished, that's huge. Very few people finish what they set out to do, hopeful screenwriters. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a big deal worth celebrating. Then honing it. You know, the, the best book on the writing process I've ever read or ever will read is Stephen King's On Writing. It's wonderful. And one of the things he says is the first draft of anything you write is entirely yours. And it goes back to the point that you and I just made that you write it you put your heart and soul into it Mm -hmm. it's entirely yours and then if you're lucky enough for it to go to a studio where they they're interested in it then the studio dogs can lift their leg and leave their yellow stain (laughs) on but but you've done your version and then any changes you make you know if a studio executive tells you gives you 30 pages of notes or three pages of notes if you address half of them and are able to talk your way through why you didn't do it their way or make you think that you make them think that you did by how well you tell your story they love it you can do a third of the notes and they love that as long as you can justify everything right um but it's also really great to be somebody that people want to work with 
the artistic ego is bullshit. Mm. It, it is arrogance and selfishness. You know, there's nothing more communal a job than making a movie. Right. So you, you've got to be collaborative and somebody that people want to work with or else it's, you know, there's another hundred people waiting in line for that job. Right. And you've collaborated with a lot of people who have these very, very strong visions, everyone from Stephen King to Clive Barker. What do you think are some of the, the keys to having those effective collaborations when you have two people or multiple people who all have strong visions? Well, you share that vision. I mean, I'm a huge Stephen King fan and a huge Clive Barker fan. And the way I work is is collaborative with them. You know, mm -hmm. uh, working with Stephen King is like working with your closest friend, you know, yeah. you know, batting, uh, batting ideas back and forth and the like, but also respecting what their vision about is about. And we have a lot in common in our tastes and th things that we don't have in common. But if you embrace their vision and don't try and make it entirely yours, I mean, the one time I did do that was with writing The Bullet, which was a 30-page short story that took place in 1999 when it was written. And I said it 30 years earlier, turned it into a feature that the short story was about a third of that. But it was with the blessing of King. Mm -hmm. It also is the least successful movie I've ever made. <laughs> but, but um, you know, respect for the material is paramount. And then your job is to make it the best that it can be as a filmmaker, either as a director or as a writer and director. I've directed scripts by King, and I've written my own scripts uh, adapted from King that I have directed. So... It's a matter of flexibility, but also knowing when you're right. And King will be the first to tell you that there's a difference between books and movies, and they're not the same thing. Right. And uh, an adaptation of The Stand, for example, there were things that were combined. There were things that were changed or shortened or, or expanded. But it's what's best for the medium. Hmm. And, uh, you know, be somebody who – and when I say collaborate, I don't just mean – writers or producers like Steven Spielberg, who was the first guy to hire me as a director. Um, it's also the crew. It's the cast. You want to be somebody that people turn to because they trust your vision and flexible enough to be able to realize, wait, this idea is much better than what mine was, a cameraman or an actor or an art director or, or a writer or even craft service. If they've got right. a an idea that's better than yours, you're an idiot not to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to realize the best ideas can come from anywhere and to just completely disregard that creator's ego that some people have. It's, it's such a trap when it's, when collaboration yeah. can just shape things into magic. Yeah. Well, ego is important because if you don't have a strong and healthy ego, you will be steamrollered at every corner by right. people if they have better ideas, but you have to have the sort of ego that you have to have the humility to realize your ideas aren't necessarily the best ones. Mm. Yeah. So it's a balance between having that ego, yeah. but also having that good sense of kind of mindfulness that allows you to, to, to internalize other people's ideas and then see what makes sense and what's going to serve the project. Exactly. Well put. So going back to, um, to writing, I'm pretty fascinated by writing processes in general was wondering if you have any specific writing process. I also read on writing and, uh, do you adhere to any 
daily minimums of like a thousand words a day or anything like that? How do you approach writing? Well, because I'm a director and a producer as well as a writer, I don't really have the time to do the page count every day. There is so many plus being a podcaster and doing all of that too. Yeah. Um, you'll be very disappointed in my answer. Is that <laughs> writing comes very easily to me. Um, I've never spent more than five weeks writing a, uh, a draft of a screenplay. And even that is rare. Um, and if I'm writing on spec, I'll sit down with an idea just because I want to write and then just start on page one and not have an outline, not necessarily know where I'm going and just let the muse take me. Mm. And I know King does that too. He'll, he doesn't really outline so much as just forages forward, whereas right. Clive Barker outlines meticulously mm. every move before he writes the final book. But, um, I really enjoy the process. I started seriously writing at the age of 12 with short stories and the like. And it's also why I write books. I'm working on my third novel right now. It's like my eighth book, I think. But um, Oh, very cool. I love the writing process, and it comes relatively easy for me. I don't struggle over it. Mm. In, fact, in fact, if something is taking a long time and becomes a struggle, then it's shitty. <laughs> you know, it, it means what I'm doing is not very good um, it, because there's an intuition when it comes to the arts, whether you're a painter or a singer or a songwriter or a writer or a filmmaker, um, that when everything is clicking, it just moves like crazy. Mm. And that's how I like to write. <clears throat> when I am on a project, I like to write at least 10 pages every day and probably seven or eight of those will be before lunch because wow. I, I most of my writing early in the day. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think um, something about intuition is, is huge when it comes to the artistic process. And David Lynch credits his transcendental meditation practice as enabling his, his writing and his directing and his overall artistic sensibility. Do you have any mindfulness practices of any kind that contribute to your creative process? Um, Nothing like TM or, or, or a philosophical or religious uh, sensibility that, that guides me, but it, it is relying on intuition. And when I get up in the morning, I read the paper, I have my breakfast. I know that's very old fashioned. But, uh, and then where I am right now is in my office, which is next door to my house. And I come in here and I catch up on things and I just start writing. Um, and the process is is sacred in itself because mm. this is my little shrine here. It's away from the rest of the world. I'm surrounded by, you know, things that come from my movies or posters or or just it's something. It's my man cave in a way. Uh, and and it becomes my shrine and the rest of the world gets locked out while I'm working. And I. You know, I also, a lot of people are inspired by music when they write. Hmm. Music distracts me, especially hmm. if, it's, if it's lyrics. Stephen King writes with rock and roll, ACDC, blasting full tilt. I, I can't play uh, vocal music or melodic music because my head gets stuck in the, I'm sort of like a scanner. I can't tune out and hmm. focus one thing. Same thing if I'm in a restaurant and there's a bunch of conversations going on around there. 
I can't tune any of them out. They all come in, and I feel like Stephen Lack in scanners, and my head's going to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. So one thing I thought was really interesting was that Masters of Horror came from these dinners that you used to throw with, with close yeah. personal friends of yours that were major directors. Can you talk about these dinners and talk about how what went down at those dinners that enabled the show to happen? Well, people think that it's a networking type thing where we're all sitting around talking, uh, making horror movies and this and that. But mostly it was a social thing. Mm -hmm. We would run into each other. We'd become friends, either going to Directors Guild meetings or film festivals or conventions or whatever. And everybody would always say, oh, one day we ought to put together a dinner with all of us. And, you know, for a couple of years that went down. And I realized, you know, that'd be great. But nobody's going to do this to actually organize it. And I thought I may as well. So it took me about a week, but I, everybody's schedule was always so all over the place, but I put together a a dinner at a restaurant in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, it was John Landis, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Stuart Gordon, Guillermo del Toro, Bill Malone, Tom McLaughlin, I forget. There were 12 of us. Wow. And we had the time of our lives. And during that dinner, we were next to a table that was having a birthday party. And so they started singing happy, happy birthday. And we sang along. <laughs> and then at the end of it, Guillermo del Toro stands up and says, the masters of horror wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we took that name as a joke so cool uh and then the next one it took me an hour to put together and Mm. so every few months we'd get together and do that and mostly it was social and we just have jobs in common but there were times it wasn't networking because that's kind of creepy you know people look to get work through other artists in the field but it was an opportunity for people of like employment to share experiences and ideas as well as just be social with one another. Mm. So the idea did come up, you know, what if we were the masters of our own fate? What if we could make movies the way we wanted to? So I came up with the concept of the the hour-long weekly anthology and put together the idea that if these guys will, they will do these movies if you leave them the fuck alone. (laughs) (laughs) um, And then it was, you know, having to get everybody to sign on, actually put it on paper. Yes, if this comes together, uh, I will do the show and all of that. And so we pitched it to three different places and all three of them wanted it. And the first one said, how much and when can we start? So um, it, it, it began there. But the dinners continued. The last one we did was after Toby passed away as a tribute to Toby because he came to almost everyone and just one of my best friends. And, um, I just haven't had the heart or the chance to put together another one. But, um, you know, there were 35 horror directors in under one roof. And, uh, so if a bomb fell, there'd never be another good. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, it, it, it was a great experience because these are some of the most wonderful people I've ever known. Yeah. You know, the, and Wes used to come to them regularly. Oh, we never got George to come. He was 
you know, based in Toronto and Pittsburgh the whole time. So, um, but we had amazing people come and, and be a part of it. And it turned into something kind of legendary. And in a way, I don't want to mess with that. Yeah. I've got those memories. One of these days, I'll do another one just because it's time and people miss it. And I miss it too. But um, yeah, it's, it was hard to get anybody else motivated to put it together. So I just decided to take it on. Yeah. Very cool. So, I mean, considering all of these close friendships that you've had with the Mount Rushmore of horror. <laughs> you mean the old guys? Yeah. <laughs> the young guys too. Yeah. Um, what, if any, are some of the commonalities between them as people that you think enables them to make such great horror and be such great storytellers and directors? Good question. Um, I feel that most of them, uh, us, including myself, were outsiders in their youth. Mm. They were never the popular kids. That's less so today because horror has become popular. But it really is an idea of embracing the outsider and seeing things from the filter of somebody who's not part of the happy crowd. Mm. You know, the, the, the athletic team, the cheerleader squad, the, the, the president uh, or king and queen of the prom. You know, right. most of them probably went, never went to the prom, including me. Um, and I think there is that outsider and, and the gutter snipe quality of it. You know, we're working within a genre that doesn't have respect. And I think a lot of us came from a place where we were not disrespected, but not even acknowledged because we weren't into what everybody else was into, whether right. it's music or film or books or whatever. I, I think it's a commonality of the fans as well as the creators is, is that idea that I don't feel like everybody else does and yeah. it can be embraced and we made careers out of it. But I think, I think that's one reason why horror conventions and festivals are so big when no other genre have them. Yeah. Um, is it's, it's a bunch of people going, wow, we all love this together. Isn't this amazing? We have kinship. It was brotherhood and sisterhood here. And, uh, you know, that, that link is formed by the dark art that, that we create or love. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a close community. It's pretty amazing. I love going to Monster Palooza and Texas Fright. Oh, yeah. I keep meaning to go to Sitches. I heard you talking about it on uh, Shockwaves. It sounds pretty amazing. I've never been to Texas Frightmare. I've oh, no, it was never... cool. Yeah, I would love to, but I haven't been invited. <laughs> <laughs> but Sitches and uh, Fantasia are the two biggest ones. And it was great because we were able to do Nightmare Cinema at both of them. And it was just such a great experience at the two biggest festivals in the world. Yeah, that's great. So one thing I heard from Steve Johnson was about the Clive Barker mummy project that you guys were working on that almost came to be. It sounded pretty amazing. Other than that, were there any other projects that that all that were so close to happening? Were there any kind of ones that got away that still get to you to this day? That was a big one. The other, probably the other biggest one is the talisman. I wrote a four hour script from the Stephen King, Peter Straub book. Mm hmm. That I wrote it for Amblin. Uh, Spielberg was producing, and um, and we were very close to going. And ABC was going to do it as a four-hour. It would have been hugely expensive, 
uh, it would have been amazing. It's one of my favorite scripts I ever wrote. But it didn't happen because ABC's fortunes went down and they said, we can't afford this. And it's like, well, look at the above the line. There's Steven Spielberg, Kathy Kennedy, Frank Marshall, Stephen King, Peter Straub, and to a much lesser extent, me. Um, this was right after the, a couple of years after the stand. Hmm. And, you know, it, it could have been amazing. And they've tried to make it over and over as a movie, as a miniseries. I, I keep hearing it's about to go. And then Ron Howard was going to do it. And then, I don't know, that disappeared too. Huh. So that was a big one. And there was another King Spielberg pro, uh, co-production that Stephen King wrote called Rose Red. It was going to be a $40 million feature right after The Stand. Spielberg said to me he wanted it to be my follow-up to The Stand. And King wrote it. Spielberg was producing. I was directing. But King and Spielberg had disagreements on where it should go. Hmm. And so there's a 500-pound gorilla on either side and a 50-pound chimpanzee between them called Mick. <laughs> so after a while, they agreed to disagree and not make the movie after all. It oh, later, man. five years later, was made into a miniseries that I wasn't involved in. But, but that was heartbreaking because it would have made a big change in, in the course of my career had I done this big Steven Spielberg, Stephen King feature film. So. Yeah. No, that sounds like it would have been amazing. Yeah. Last few uh, quick questions. So there's, yeah. for filmmakers, there's so many resources out there. There's so many courses and books, a lot of which are written by people who've never really done it. And there's just- Exactly. A, yeah. <laughs> there's just a lot of bullshit in that market. But yep. um, throughout your career, were there any either courses or books or resources that were particularly formidable to your, that you would attribute your career success to? Well, even though I was well into my career when it came out, I still think On Writing is the most inspiring uh, book I've read on the process. Yeah, S Screenwriting books bother me because once you get past learning the format of a screenplay, I think it teaches you how to write scripts like everybody else. Right. And what you want to do to stand out is not write like everybody else is to write something special. And, you know, this event happens with these number of pages and 10 pages in, you have to do this. and Act, act, act. I've never in my life written knowing what an act break was going to be or even thinking about that act break until the script was finished. And then I'd figure out when I go back into the development people and talk about where act one ends and where act two begins. Um, maybe you can get some benefit out of it. Uh, I... I never did. Um, mm. And filmmaking, I, I think the idea that you've got commentary tracks to movies, which I didn't have in my wonder years, um, is fantastic. Robert Rodriguez does particularly good ones called 10 Minute Film School mm -hmm. that are amazing. And I just think you can learn from that and learn by watching movies and trying to pay attention to their construction, to the ones that you love. Right. But it's not... You can't, if you can't write, you can't make yourself into a good writer. So couple up with somebody you know who is, mm. who you are compatible with. Um, and as far as filmmaking goes, again, so much of it's intuition, but it's intuition through education. The more you know, 
the the better you can work with the tools that are available to you. So I, I think it probably is worthwhile. I'm sure there are inexpensive or free online courses where you just learn about what the tools are, what lenses do, um, what kinds of uh, what lighting and colors effect in a psychological sense and things like that. For example, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, when he wanted somebody to be intimidating, the camera would be placed low, looking up and give them mm. power. And when you want to intimidate, you shoot down on somebody so that they seem more insignificant. Right. And using a long lens in order to put a tight focus on just one plane of vision where everything in the foreground and background is soft and out of focus is a very effective way to build tension too. Um, and a wide lens that shows you the world and everything in focus allows you to do other geographic manipulation and the like. So there's reasons for everything. And, and I know there are resources out there and a very long answer to your question, which is, yeah, on writing. <laughs> very cool. <laughs> and I feel like you, you kind of already answered this, but what's some of the most commonly bad advice you hear given to aspiring filmmakers? Well, going to textbooks for one, mm. um, I, you know, I don't hear that much bad advice because I'm not paying attention to what's going out to hopeful filmmakers so much. Right. But um, I just, yeah. I, I, do you have an example of something that bugs you? Um, I, th I a lot of people giving this obligatory sense of having to go to film school, like oh, you have to go to film school. You have to, oh, no, kind no. of the what you had spoken to before. You have to learn structure and you have to read these all of these structure books on how to write a screenplay. Whereas people like yeah. Quentin Tarantino specifically didn't do any of that. And they, no. that's why their, their projects and their films and their visions are completely different to what we see. Unique. Yeah. I, I never went to film school. My film school was amazing stories and, and oh, wow. my first job. Um, and you know, those textbooks do flatten it out. Uh, I, I just think the best thing you can do is watch films by the best filmmakers, listen to commentaries by filmmakers you you admire, and just do it. Keep doing it. It, it costs you nothing to write, nothing yeah. but time. And get people you trust to give you their feedback, not people who will blow smoke up your ass, not right. people who, not your best friends who say, this is so cool, I want to see this movie, man. But somebody that really... And be a person who's open to it. Because I've found most people who ask you to read something to give, give your input, they, the only input they want is, oh, I loved it. This is great. And that doesn't do you any good at all. Got it. I have a really good friend, Bill Malone, uh, who's a wonderful filmmaker. Um, and uh, he showed me uh, his first cut of Insomnia, or Parasomnia, the movie he did. Mm. And said, you know, Mick, what do you think? I really want to know what you think. And he's one of the few people, you know, I just said, Bill, I think it's great. It's terrific. I love it. And he said, no, Mick, really? What do you think? <laughs> Very specific. And, and it made me realize most people don't want that. They kind of get pissed at you if you don't love their film and want to help them get it made. Mm. You know, it's it's a lot of work. I started writing at 12 and started making my living at it at 33. So it took me 20 years of doing it 
just because I loved it and doing it all on spec. And right. It's it's worth it. The more the more you work, the better you get. Thank you very, very much. Any uh, any parting words of wisdom for aspiring horror directors out there? Yeah, I just, you know, I want to be really encouraging because you can do this. There's all these things. I, you know, when I was learning how to make films, films were made with 35 millimeter cameras and great expensive lab costs and everything. And you can do it on your MacBook. You can do it on your iPhone. You can do amazing sound design and, and everything. And just to not make excuses not to do it. Um, and again, find the best possible talents to help you rather than just whoever is closest to you. And it might hurt your best friend's heart if he's not the romantic lead in your short. But, but you also want people to like the movie. Right. And the, the, the biggest sign of an amateur film is amateur performances. Mm. That's Sharing huge. With folks. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. Great. Mick, thank you again. This was a real honor. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. Thanks Thank a you. lot. Take care. All right, Nick. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. So much wisdom to unpack here. So let's take a look at some of the key pieces of insight from Mick Garris. Number one, keep calm and write on. So Mick really speaks to the importance of writing spec scripts and he seemed to imply that even if your script doesn't get bought, it can still have an impact later down the line. A lot of aspiring screenwriters are put off by the risk of spending months on a spec script because there's always a chance it won't get made. Mick reminds us that this is not the point. Even if it doesn't get made, a producer can still read it and take note of your style, dialogue, or storytelling ability, and then contact you for something else later on. Because of this, it's important to approach everything that you write or create as a potential calling card and a potential stepping stone to other things. Don't skimp on quality because it's just a spec script. Spec scripts really matter. The other thing about writing on spec that Mick reminds us of is that when you do write a spec script, the script is entirely yours. Mick has written a ton of projects, a lot of which have gotten made, some of which have not gotten made. In Mick's experience, pitching a fully developed script as opposed to just a concept or a treatment enables you to have way more control over the project. When you pitch a concept, producers are likely to assign multiple writers, bring on other producers, and lots of other people who will want to weigh in and leave their mark on your project. This quickly turns into movie by committee, which no director wants. Lastly, and possibly the most important thing about writing spec scripts is this. It enables you to work on your craft. Each script you write makes you a better screenwriter. So to avoid writing because you're afraid it won't get sold is preposterous because the more scripts you write, the better your writing gets and the more likely you are to sell a script. It's important to hone your storytelling, dialogue, and writing skills, and spec scripts allow you to do just that. So write that script as well as you can. Even if it doesn't get bought, it can open doors for you. And if it does get bought, you'll have more control over the project. But regardless, you'll be a better writer and a better storyteller having written it. This segues nicely into the next point. Read On Writing by Stephen King. 
In an interview, George R.R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame asked Stephen King, and I quote, how the fuck do you write so many books so fast? This book tells you how. It's the most straightforward, no-nonsense, actionable guide for not just aspiring writers and screenwriters, but artists in general. A lot of really important people cite it as a critical volume, and it's a pretty easy read. I definitely recommend you check it out. I've read it and listened to it, and I recommend doing both. Stephen King does the narration, and he's not only hilarious, but sometimes it feels like he's sitting down talking to you and giving you writing advice, which is super cool. So I recommend listening to it to get the basic principles and then read it so you can really let those principles sink in. Again, that's On Writing by Stephen King. Priceless. Number three, ego is the enemy. Mick touched on something that doesn't get discussed very often, but can make a huge difference in careers. Be the kind of person people enjoy working with. You know those actors who fall off the map and you never hear from them ever again and you think to yourself, whatever happened to so-and-so? Most likely they were assholes on set and they were never hired again because of it. Same goes for directors. Same goes for writers. Be the kind of person who's enjoyable to work with. Mick is loved in the industry and always has been. And it's not just because he's a sweet and wonderful person, but because he's a great collaborator. Being collaborative is a big element of Mick's success, both as a director and a writer and a producer. There's no more communal of a job than filmmaking. So while it's important to fight for your vision as a director, Always be open to the fact that some of the best ideas can come from outside of yourself. Last point is an extra one, and that is don't network, be a good friend. So your immediate circle of friends can be a huge part of your success. Psychologists have been proving this for years. They say you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. Consider the fact that Mick was hanging out with people like Toby Hooper, Stephen King, George Romero, Wes Craven, the list goes on. If those are your peers, could you imagine what kind of art you're going to produce? Choose your friends and your immediate social circle wisely. They shape you and they inspire you. So do things like Mick does. Organize dinners and hang out because, again, you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. Choose your circle wisely. Anyway, guys, thank you again for listening and huge thanks to Mick Garris for being so generous with his knowledge. I uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation. If you did, it would mean the world to me if you could share it on social media. And uh, if you want to follow the show, you can follow it on Instagram at I am Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. Twitter is the exact same handle. And uh, thank you for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now go get working on that spec script. Spec script.